in here right at the last minute, and that's because, or after the last minute, actually, when I finally walked in and sat down, I got a call this afternoon about 3 o'clock that we were getting a refrigerator delivered. They were not supposed to deliver it until tomorrow. And so they called me from Lowe's and said, we're here around your house, we've got a refrigerator. I said, um, okay, I'll be there in 10 minutes if you guys can just hang out. And so I got there, but then, you know, we've got to get back here and all. And so it's just been kind of a, a whirlwind uh, this afternoon. And I didn't expect my parents to be here either. I <laughs> knew they were, they were supposed to be here tonight, but after services, I thought it was kind of weird when I called them and at 4.30, they were on the road instead of they start at five, and so I was kind of wondering why they were in the car, but you know, I was so busy, I wasn't really thinking anything about it. But the fact that they're here just adds a, a little bit more anxiety to our subject tonight, our word this week, which is marriage. <laughs> in all seriousness, the subject of marriage is one that I approach with some misgivings. I mentioned Wednesday night, if you were here, we were talking about prayer and how I'd read about a fellow who admitted that in 16 years of full-time preaching, he'd never preached one single sermon devoted entirely to prayer, which is mind-boggling. But now I'll make a confession of my own, telling myself, in a decade of preaching, I haven't preached a single sermon devoted solely to the topic of marriage. Now, certainly I've mentioned some important principles that relate to it in passing. We've made some application here and there, but I've never addressed it topically like we're doing tonight. And that's certainly not because I think it's an unimportant subject. Uh, far from it. In fact, it's because I've felt inadequate to address it properly. For the first several years that I was preaching, I was single, and I think it should go without saying that uh, someone who isn't married doesn't feel comfortable get up at, to get up and address the topic of marriage. But even since being married, it feels a little bit presumptuous for someone with now just barely five years of experience in marriage to get up and to try to talk to people who might have been married for 20, 30, 40, 50 years about important principles of, of marriage. Uh, I'm keenly aware not only of my own relative inexperience, but uh, also of my own failure to live up to my obligations in this relationship at, at all times. Nevertheless, that is our subject tonight. There's no way out of it since that's the word in the book. And it's a good thing to be forced to talk about it, uh, not only because it is a subject that is so important, but because from time to time it's good to be forced to talk about important things in general that you wouldn't otherwise talk about. Because if we waited until we had perfect knowledge of a subject or until we had deep experience on a matter or until we felt like we had our lives all sorted out in this particular area that we're addressing, we'd never get any preaching done at all. <laughs> because the preacher is just an imperfect vessel. He's a, a jar of clay as the Apostle Paul said. But with all that said, I'm not going to offer any helpful hints or any tips on your marriage or how to have a successful marriage or how you can do things better. I simply want to address what God has to say briefly tonight. And, and really, that's where we should always uh, start and ideally end when it comes to any important topic. 
Let's look at Genesis chapter 2 and see what God has to say about a successful marriage. And Tristan read our, our key verse, verse number 24, a few moments ago, but I actually want to begin reading back in verse number 18. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam there wasn't found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, because she was taken out of man. Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother, and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked, and were not ashamed. According to Scripture, God himself created marriage. And we don't know very much about the details of how all of this went down here in terms of the ceremony and what sort of music they had and who baked the cake and all those sorts of things. But what we do know is significant. And I just want us to notice three important principles tonight that emerge from this text. First of all, there must be a severance. Verse number 24 Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother. There must be a leaving of the father and the mother, a leaving of the old home, of the old family ties, of the security, the old protection, and the beginning of a new home. Of course, that doesn't mean that you just ignore mom and dad. <laughs> It doesn't mean that you never call them up on the phone. It doesn't mean that you never go over and have a meal. It doesn't mean that you don't call them up and ask them to come help you move or anything like that. <laughs> In fact, I've observed, and you've probably experienced this too, on both ends of the spectrum for some of you, that after you're married, home, in a lot of ways, becomes even more sacred than it was before. The relationship between parent and child changes, it's different, but it's still special, just in a, in a different way. But there needs to be that severing that takes place. I think these words here, therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother, uh, remember, this is not uh, what Adam says here, and this is not what God says during the ceremony. This is, this is Moses' inspired commentary later on. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother, etc. I think this wording here is maybe not so much for the benefit of the bride and the groom as it is for the parents of the bride and the groom. It's just as much for that mother and father as it is for them. Because I think a lot of times it might be more difficult for the parents to sever ties than it is for that man and woman who are getting married. You know, in most wedding ceremonies, you conduct a wedding, you say, who gives this woman to be married? And the father of the bride will say, her mother and I do. But I wonder if we shouldn't ask all the parents <laughs> individually, you know, do you give your son to be married, you and you, and do you give your daughter 
to be married. There needs to be a commitment from all of the parents too because they have to be willing to sever those ties. A man shall leave his father and his mother. They must realize that their child is leaving the nest and they need to be willing to let him or let her go. And of course that applies to the bride and the groom as well. A lot of marital problems occur, and we've probably all seen this, when one or the other or both are unwilling or unable to sever those ties the way that they should. They still depend on their parents emotionally, psychologically, financially, whatever it may be. And we all need that sort of help from time to time, sure. But it shouldn't be something that's constant, something that the couple are dependent on. If it does, it can create insecurity in that marriage. Do some of you, or maybe all of you, remember the old folk song, Billy Boy, Billy Boy? No. Oh, where have you been, Billy Boy, Billy Boy? And you know, there's the refrain, uh, she's a young thing and cannot leave her mother. He's off looking for a, a wife, and that's the refrain that comes back around. Well, there's a lot of verses to that. And you might think, she's a young thing and can't leave her mother. How old would you expect her to be, 16, 17 years old? Well, if you go all the way through the verses of that song, it says, how old is she, Billy Boy, Billy Boy? How old is she, Charming Billy? Three times six and four times seven, 28 and 11. She's a young thing and cannot leave her mother. You do the math, you add that up, that makes her 85 years old. <laughs> and it makes you wonder just how old mom is, <laughs> for that matter, if she's 85. And yet she's still not old enough to reach that level of maturity to sever those ties with mom and to marry poor old long-suffering Billy. We've probably all seen marriages that had their problems because that severance wasn't able to take place, and yet God says that must take place. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother. Secondly, there must be permanence. He shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife. If you remember the King James Version, of course, here it says he shall cleave unto his wife. And cleave is one of those interesting little words in the English language, one of those words that makes it so difficult for non-native speakers to learn English because it has two exactly opposite meanings. And that's because the word cleave comes from two separate German roots. They're different words in German, but somehow once they got into English, they took on the same form and they merged over time. And that's how you get these two different meanings. One means to split, to divide, to cut in two. We probably can think of some examples of where it's used like that, a cloven hoof, that's a tense of cleave, or a, a meat cleaver, that's one of the ways we still use it. You cut there with that. Of course, that's not what we're talking about when we're talking about cleaving your wife, that you take the, uh, <laughs> that you take the cleaver to her there. The other is the German root from which we get our word glue also. That's what we're talking about here, to adhere to, to stick to, to be inseparable. It creates a permanent bond. And that's what we're doing when we say, till death do us part in a wedding ceremony. That's what almost everyone says, some form of that when they take their vows. And yet I wonder if most couples 
really consider what it is that they've promised when they say, till death do us part. As long as I live, as long as my heart beats, as long as there's a breath in my body, I'll be your husband or I'll be your wife. That's a pledge that they not only made to each other, that ultimately becomes a pledge that's made before God. And I'm afraid that that's not how most people think of marriage in our society these days. I'll be your husband or your wife as long as we have mutual interest or as long as we get along more or less or as long as things are going along pretty easily. But when problems arise, society tells us, well, get out. Pack your bags. You deserve to be happy. You don't need to be around there anymore. Go and and make your own way. That's not the promise that we make. And that's not what God's intention here, to hold fast to your wife. Now, it's not easy. We're individuals. There might be times, gentlemen, that you would like nothing more than to pack your bags and to get out. And you know what? There are probably times that she would probably help you pack. That's just the way it is. Sometimes you're going to butt heads and it's going to be difficult. But permanence is God's design. That's his intention for marriage. I read about a psychologist who said there are two things which should never be started prematurely. One is divorce. The other is embalming. And I think that's good advice. God intends for this to be a permanent bond, and there ought to be that recognition when we enter into it. Third, and finally, there's unity. A man shall leave his father and his mother and shall hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Now, on a a literal level, this refers to the, the sexual intimacy that is part of God's design for marriage, and certainly that is an important part of his plan. But there's more than that to this, too. Two people becoming one, becoming a unity. That isn't something that just instantly happens. It's not like it's magical when the preacher says, I now pronounce you husband and wife, you may kiss the bride, that now it's all, they're they're one. Everything's going to go along swimmingly from here on now. It begins then, but that unity isn't just achieved automatically like that. It begins on the wedding day, but that process continues as they live together. They learn how to disagree together. They learn how to argue. They learn how to love each other, in other words. That unity deepens as they share the events of life together, both the good and the bad. Now, unity and uniformity ultimately aren't the same thing. And I think it's important that we notice that when God presents Eve to Adam here, he didn't expect Eve to become a female Adam. He expected Eve to be Eve and Adam to be Adam. They're different psychologically. They're different physically. God never expected them to become exactly like each other. I like the way that the great 20th century preacher Peter Marshall, favorite of yours, Peter Marshall puts it, marriage is the federation of two sovereign states. It's the bringing together of two sovereign states to form a unity, making this compact peace treaty. I guess you could think of it that way. Spiritually, physically, socially, materially, as these two parties share in those blessings that God gives to them.
my hope is that in going back to the beginning here, seeing God's design for marriage in Genesis chapter 2, may he help us to strive for these things in our marriage, for unity, for permanence, for severance from those other ties. And I want you to notice here, just as we close, the same factors that are required for a successful marriage are the exact same things that are required in our relationship with Jesus Christ. Severance from our past way of life and those associations that would drag us down. Permanence in the sense, as we talked about in Bible class this morning, that this is a serious commitment. This is life-altering. We need to be in this for the long haul. And then there's unity. We have an intimate relationship with God through Christ as we come to love him and to serve him more. If you're here this evening and there's something amiss, whether it's in your marital relationship or whether it's in that relationship that you have with Christ, and you need to make changes this evening, it's the Lord's invitation while we stand and while we sing.